0: Welcome to the Priceless Podcast. Today again with an with an exciting guest. Uh, I will, well, you will hear a little bit more about him in a few seconds probably, but uh, before we start I want to say that this podcast is made in partnership with the European Forum of LGBT Christian Groups. If you want to send a donation to the European Forum and or the podcast, you can find all the necessary information in the podcast description. Also, if you would like to listen to the audio version only, you can find it on almost any audio uh, podcast app, not audio, but podcast app uh, that you like of your choice. Uh, Just search for The Priceless Podcast. And now we come to the time uh, where uh, we introduce our guest for today. And uh, I have a special guest. And I'm really looking forward to this conversation. His, name's, his name is James Allison. And he's originally from the UK, but he's actually from all over the world. But maybe he'll tell you a little bit more uh, when he introduces himself. So for the beginning, James, thank you so much for accepting this invitation and for being part of this podcast. Uh, Welcome to the Prices Podcast.
1: Thank you very much indeed. I'm privileged that you would have chosen me. Thank you.
0: The privilege is all mine and the viewers who haven't heard about you will probably see in this interview why I'm so excited. But could you, before we start, tell a few words about yourself, introduce yourself and tell them who you are? What, whatever you would like to say about yourself. Gosh, uh,
1: well, I'm a, I'm a priest and a theologian, a Catholic priest, a theologian, um, and uh, I live in Madrid, in Spain, having lived in lots of different countries, Brazil, Chile, Bolivia, Mexico, the United States, as well, of course, as my, my homeland, England. Um, and, uh, yeah, I've been... Uh, how how we say that? I've been a, a, an out gay man as a, a as a priest for a long time, um, uh, with all sorts of adventures uh, to to tell uh, regarding regarding the ups and downs of that. Um, and uh, I guess that m- much of what I've done is done as a theologian and as a preacher has been applying the thought of a French thinker called René Girard who has a particular understanding of desire and violence, to basic Christian theology. And uh, if you like, my conviction is that if we understand basic Christianity right, then it will be obvious why um, being open and straightforward about being L, G, B, or T is a direct and organic consequence of that, rather than a piece of special pleading, uh, or 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 added on extra, if you like,
0: when did you figure out that that you were gay?
1: Oh, when I was nine um uh, I was told by a, a, another boy at school, as one was in those days what what a queer was, and in those days, queer was not a a chic uh word as it is now. In those days, queer was a very nasty word. And I instantly knew that I was one. Um, and in fact, you know, it seems bizarre to say so. At this, I was almost instantly thrilled that there was a word to describe people like me, and also utterly shocked and lost, because I knew thereafter that it would mean that I was basically uh, lost. Uh, there was no, there would be no warm receiving place amongst the adults uh, in my life. In other words, that everything would have to be hidden. and uh, So yeah, uh, that, that started age nine. Uh, so from nine until I was 18, uh, I was living a lie, uh, trying to work out how to pretend, how to survive, all those things. I finally came out when I was 18. Um, but not because I was, if you like, confident, but because I knew I had to be honest, even though I had no basis of confidence. Um, so uh, the, we're, here we're talking about the uh, the sixties, the late sixties and seventies. Um, so we're not talking about, uh, 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 you know, not talking about very recent times. Um, so yes, very. Uh, yeah, uh, a complicated complicated period.
0: You said that you were thrilled when you were nine and you found out that there was a word for, for what you are. What made you feel thrilled?
1: Oh, well, I'd fallen in love with uh, another boy. Um, and uh, so there was this huge, uh, you know, amazing... Feeling of being in love and not really understanding what it was all about, and not having any words for it, and realizing that here was something that was good and that was wonderful, and that you know I wanted to last forever. When you're in love with someone, the, mo- the one thing you most want is to be with that person forever. Um, and um, and I realized that other people didn't feel the same way, and I was having to sort of try to learn what other people. Uh, were like and why they were like that and didn't really understand it all. So when at last there was a word that there were people like me, uh, even though it was an awful word, it was kind of, oh, it's not simply there's something utterly mysterious. Uh, uh, When you know that there's a word for something, it means that in one sense you're not the only one. Um, So yes, it was very odd because it was simultaneously a relief to discover that you are something, and also the awareness that that means that you're you are being launched over an abyss. Mm.
0: And then you decided to become a priest. What motivated you to become? Oh well, a priest? there was a long there was a
1: long route between uh, the realization of being gay and becoming a priest. I mean, first of all. Um, When I was twelve or thirteen, I fell in love. This was in another school with another boy, and it happened that this boy was uh, was a Catholic, and so I began to work out because I was from a a very conservative evangelical family, Um, and I don't know whether uh, whether your audience, I I imagine your audience, is aware of these things, but very often the you know the the rigidity of teaching can be even stronger and harsher in the evangelical world than in the Catholic world. Um, and the notion of being an abomination and everything being according to biblical law and hell being very much round the corner um, was very, very strong. Um, so the realization that there was something warmer and more relaxed, I think, about the relationship between God and creation, as shown by my Catholic uh, friend, was the beginnings of uh, my of my conversion to uh, to, to Catholicism. So eventually, uh, I became a Catholic when I was eighteen, um, and so that was the beginnings of my route towards uh, joining the Dominicans and. and uh, uh, um becoming Greece. So let's remember that this was the late eighties, very beginning sorry, the late seventies, very beginning of the eighties. So um it's worthwhile remembering that the the church at that time was curiously in quite a similar place to it where it is now. Um, you know, now with Francis in one sense well we've moved ahead now, but at the beginning of Francis, it was as though we had gone back to the end of Paul the Sixth. Um, it, we hadn't yet had the 35 years of going backwards, which were given us by John Paul. Uh, so people's presumptions at the end of the 70s and beginning of 80s was that we would be moving on, we would be becoming more uh, honest and open in this in this sphere, amongst others, that discussion would happen. Instead of which, with the election of John Paul II, we had basically a massive, you know, break. Put on everything, a whole lot of things were forbidden to be talked about, so things became much, much, much uh, more difficult, and that took several years to to sink in. so it wasn't until the mid eighties that that had really begun to to kick in by which time I was already a, uh, a member of the of the Dominicans. Um, but so so yes, um, you know i I accepted that I was a sort of some sort of defective uh straight person which is what how uh, how gay people were supposed to think of themselves um and i thought well i don't have any option but to to join a religious uh, order i was open with my superiors and at that period so in the early 80s these things could be talked about really quite honestly um it only it was only later that things really started to become difficult again when everybody got frightened of this um and it became a real, uh, you know, taboo taboo subject. Um, so you had this this strange sense of going backwards. Um, so yes, that was where I was in the in the early to mid eighties. Yeah.
0: I mean, you you mentioned now that we're talking that you were talking about this. I. I... Uh, I I suppose it was actually after the, uh, I don't know the word in English, Second Concil, Concil, Concilium? Second Vatican Concil? Council. The, the Second, the Vatican, Second Council. Vatican Council, uh, where the Church started to open up much, much more. Uh, so was that the reason that things were going so well in, in the 70s?
1: I don't know whether they were going so well, but certainly there was a sense that things needed to be talked about. There was an optimism about the future of the, of the church, and no doubt along with it there were lots of silly things going on. I don't really know because I was too young to uh, to have participated uh, really in, in what was going on at the, uh, at the time. But yes, generally the, you know the, there was adult discussions about lots of things uh, that were that were happening. As well, of course, as we now know, as a a very strong backlash uh, on the part of those who really didn't want things to move or thought that the things that were moving were moving terribly badly and in the wrong direction. So, um, but yes, this was all part of uh, a mixture of the effervescence of what happened at at Vatican II and the backlash uh, to it.
0: Yeah, so John Paul II was a welcome kind of pope for for the people who didn't want this progress or
1: absolutely yep he was he was very much the brought in to put on the brakes which he did um uh, so yes you had so you had i think what was typical of of that kind of person which is a, a very uh, Warm and publicly friendly face. I think John Boyle was an excellent public person and an absolutely totalitarian attitude towards the church. Uh, So uh, great for the public and terrible in terms of church management. And we've seen how catastrophic that was with the fact that he surrounded himself and allowed himself to be surrounded with some really pretty awful uh, uh, people who who, uh, were... Child abusers, cruel. Uh, many of them were uh, gay men with extremely violent uh, <laughs> lives. Uh, um, so it was a very, very corrupt, a very corrupt court uh, that uh, that John Paul had, uh, to which he seems. You know, it's, it's it's an open question how much he knew actually about how corrupt his court was. Um,
0: yeah. Well, it, it is an interesting topic, but we won't go there uh, now. Uh, so how was it for you you said that you were out how was it for you to be within this church that where there was this huge backlash and you were gay you were as much as i know you were openly gay towards your colleagues
1: yes in the in the religious order both in in england and in the, the countries that i was in i was openly gay this was uh because as i said because this didn't seem to be particularly odd at the time, at least in in some of the contexts I was. Um, though I've later discovered in, in other contexts it was very odd, um, because there were, you know, each different culture has its different way of coping with this uh, with this reality. But remember that there was also at the time, at the beginning of the eighties, from the beginning to the middle to right through the end of the eighties, there was AIDS. AIDS arrived with a bang. Uh, um, so one of the ways in which, you know, uh, gay men, frightened gay men like myself uh, were out and were able to be as out as possible at the time was by being involved in pastoral work with uh, with people with AIDS, uh, which was a, uh, you know, a mixture of being very frightened for ourselves and longing to help other people in um, in in awful situations um, so it was also difficult for church authorities to be completely hateful to people who were doing pastoral work with people who were dying so if you like it was strangely it was a, a very strong learning space um, for uh, for gay Christians at the time if you like being involved in pastoral work uh, with AIDS because Really, the you know the all the language about being hated by God and being punished by God and all of that came absolutely alive uh, in uh, dealing with this terrible virus and its effects on uh, uh, on people's lives and the fact that it killed them. And at that time, you know, uh, little was known at first, and then. Um, in many countries, for instance, in Brazil where I lived, there were hardly condoms available, and certainly not condoms of sufficient strength uh, to be able to cope with uh, anal sex. People were not used to lubricant. Uh, people just died incredibly fast. Um, you know, I think eighty percent of people of people who were infected died within five months of their first opportunistic infection. So it was really, a, it was really a very very cruel period. But also a place of learning because you had to, to, to fight for your faith, to receive and keep alive the possibility of understanding that God loves us in the midst of all this. And learning and discovering that that is true. Uh, you know, it was through interface with people in this situation that I was able to learn. A good deal of what I've learnt in terms of of theology, about the presence of God, about the presence of God in suffering um, and other people suffering So yes, uh, you couldn't really, uh, you know the, the, The backlash was very strong, but of course AIDS was stronger and God empowering us to get through AIDS was stronger still. In fact, I I think to this day that one of the factors that has meant that my generation, if you like, of uh, gay Christian men, priests, pastors, one of the things that has enabled us not to be uh, squashed, if you like, by church authority and their awful rhetoric and the nonsense they speak, is having lived in the midst of the, shadow, the valley of the shadow of death. you know, I shall walk in the valley of the shadow of death, and I will not fear. Uh, once you've been there uh, and learnt to see and discover God's love in the midst of that, once you've been given faith in the resurrection, as your best friends and loved ones die, as you discover that the faith, faith is real, then you also realize how weak and phony the ecclesiastical quackery is—that uh, that blathers on with its silly definitions—and uh, is not really related to real people and really you know, the central matters of God, faith, life, love, and death. <laughs> so yes, I think there was something. There was something incredibly strong in that. Uh, just, I just, just read a, a book which is going to come out soon about similar experiences in North America. It's published by a, uh, a young journalist called Michael O'Lochlin um, uh, who's written about uh, gay Catholics at the time of AIDS in the United States. And he's, he brings out something very similar that actually the dealing with that was so much stronger than even the, the silly... Uh, if you like this this the silly attempt to play bureaucratic uh, um definitional games uh ult- ultimately even even the the top clerics can't fight against that
0: hmm. well w- one question I have is you talked about uh, the ups and downs that you know your being gay uh, brought to you and being part of the church what would you mention as the biggest down for you which Ah. is really hard and what was the best up for you well i mean i think that uh... The
1: up, uh, the best up has been fantastic theological education which I received from Dominicans and from Jesuits um, between them, uh, which especially when I then discovered the thought of Avrenegia, of enabled me to gave me the tools to involve, or to really to rethink Christian faith and to begin to re-understand it in a completely orthodox way, but in an entirely new language. Um, so that's been a fantastic up. And then, of course, the many magnificent people uh, who have become sisters and brothers—genuine sisters and brothers—who I've met along the way. The downs are, of course, that you have uh, an ecclesiastical mechanism that is basically run by the closet, um, uh, with a very large proportion of senior clergy who are closeted gay men, and of course, and many of them are, don't wish to be cruel or nasty at all, but they're not prepared to stand stand up for what is true. Uh, they just want a quiet life, um, want to be so-called prudent or obedient, um, don't want to question the teaching of the church, uh, even though they themselves don't live it and know that it's wrong. Um, and then, of course, what's sadder is the number of uh, self, self-hating self uh, and really very tortured um, homophobic clergy, especially high clergy, there are are people who everyone knows are gay except perhaps themselves um, and these are the ones who have the strongest need to punish and to weed out and to attack uh, and there's something pathetic and awful about that and the way that those who who know about this are unable to call those people out and say listen we know why you're doing this we know why you're talking like this now just go and get some treatment. Get yourself looked after. There's no need for you to be. But oh, you suggest, you know, the, the, these people then go into uh, defending themselves with the Holy Father and the Mother of God and blah blah blah. Uh, it's a it's a very sad. Um, it's a very sad. How frequent the figure of the um, the violently self-hating, uh, gay clergy person is. I think that almost every. Uh, seminary almost every religious house of formation has one at least and everybody knows that that is the person that they have to watch out for and and it's very sad that that's going to stay the way it is until people are able to talk rationally about what is true in this field rather than playing games trying to say well there is this awful teaching but we'll dance around it as long as we all pretend together and if we play nice with each other it'll be okay. Of course, we can't tell the lay people that it's nonsense Because then we'll be going against the teaching of the church. So we create a nice safe space for ourselves Except that we can't really create a safe space because there's always one or two self-haters amongst us who are going to try to use this issue So, you know, it's a system of mutual blackmail basically, mutual emotional blackmail That's uh And that's awful uh, and uh what it what it does is it allows the clergy to live in a completely fake, semi-safe but not really safe space, just so long as they're not honest with lay people, and that is pure faricism, because it means it means that they can't reach out and tell the truth to young people who need to be told the truth so that they can grow in good conscience and become. Sane, balanced adults who are capable of living sane, balanced lives rather than furtive, guilty, etc., etc.
0: Well, it's it sounds just, of course, sad, but also so lonely for these people. Like when you can't really live with your truth or come out with your truth, it, it sounds lonely to me. Yes, I wonder. I. Uh... Yes, I mean, I I guess so.
1: Um, I think that probably varies very much on the degree of, uh, uh, well, on different personality types. Um, But yes, it's certainly not healthy. Um, It's certainly not healthy.
0: Yeah. Well, there is one thing, when I was growing up and going to church or having friends, there was always this question, what if they knew? Would they still be my friend? And that is also a place of loneliness. And of course, there is a lot of fear and uncertainty. What if they find out? But I know that you are maybe sick and tired of telling this story, but I heard it in another podcast and I found it very interesting because One of the things that happened to you, because you do openly talk about LGBT people and how the church needs to be affirming, but you also got a, let's call it a backlash from a bishop who, I don't know how how it's called within the church, Uh, excuse my ignorance, but you know, you got fired. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> ah. um, oh yes oh, well, that, and, and that then was, you that got was a very interesting call could you kind of tell the story what happened yes yes well uh, you know
1: I I've, since, since 1995 I've been looking for you know I'm a priest I'm not a member of religious uh, order any longer and I've been looking for a way to um, to be involved to to belong in some way to have a stranger to have a superior Um And that's terribly difficult because, of course, it would be very difficult for a superior to have me as their uh, subject um, while being able to to imagine that I might be telling the truth uh, because (laughs) um, off the record they know uh, that I am telling the truth, but on the record they might have to shut me down. So... uh, I've tried to sort this out. I've tried to talk to archbishops. I've tried to talk to cardinals uh, about this, but they're often very friendly off the record, but aren't able to do anything. But one of them, a very high-ranking uh, cardinal at the time, said, oh, "Well, when, the next time you move to a new city, uh, reach out to the bishop and see whether you can sort it out." So when I moved to a city in Brazil, uh, I did that. I entered into correspondence with, um, sent sent a copy of a, my book, Faith Beyond Resentment, translated into Portuguese. No reply. And a year later, I found out that the, the bishop, the cardinal, wanted to get in touch with me. I didn't know why, but so I went along. And it turned out that I'd given a, an interview in the local newspaper at, at Pride time. And although I hadn't realized this, they had put my interview on the same page as an op-ed by him, um, in which he'd, I think, been making some criticisms about Pride. And he thought that I'd done this deliberately, um, that I'd been trying to make a fool of him. Um, so, in fact, I had no idea. I hadn't even been in the country when um, the uh, the newspaper had rung me up and and done the interview. So I had really no idea of how, of where it was going to be and like that. And eventually, he could see that that was true that I wasn't um, that I wasn't making it up. There'd been no deliberate thing. But then he said, "Well, okay. So now, how do I how do I remove you from the clergy?" That was his his only attitude towards me. And of course, in the Catholic setup. You can't remove somebody from uh, being a priest without cause. Either they have to have done something really bad, criminal, like abuse somebody, or, um, or for instance, get married. Um, <laughs> uh, or they have to ask for it themselves. But it, because it's a sacrament, it can't be done Automatically. Well, anyhow, so he couldn't get rid of me easily, but then eventually he found a change in canon law that allowed him to do it automatically without my having done anything, so he went through that system and sent it to Rome and got me removed, and I got sent a letter in Latin saying uh, you know, a whole lot of incomprehensible things, um, but theoretically in the name of the Holy Father. Um, in, nominum, in nominem sumum pontifico, I don't know, all of that stuff in Latin, um, Anyhow, basically saying that I was uh, uh, not to preach or um, celebrate or hear confessions or anything like that. Um, so I was, in, in the official language, I think they used to call it lay-sized, reduced to the lay status. Uh, now I think they try, to, but they try not to be so rude to lay people, and now they call it dismissal from the clerical status. Um, so when I received this, I was pretty upset, as you can imagine. It was yet another... Um, hierarchical attempt to say you are nothing you are nobody but so i showed it i showed it to my former novice master who was a bishop and he said oh james pay no attention these people if they were halfway sensible they'd um, they'd get you on board to try and help work out how we get uh, forward with this so he said but don't don't write to the pope because it'll never get through but i in other words he will ask the pope for a private audience and ask him to sort it out And so he did. It it took a a bit of time for him to get his private audience, but he did. He took a letter from me. I explained the situation in the letter, and he handed it to the Pope. And afterwards, he rang me up and said, hey, I've had my meeting. It went very well. He didn't seem upset with what I talked to him about, so I'm sure something will happen. Let's let's see what happens. I thought, great. So I've appealed this uh, crazy thing in Latin. I said to the Pope in the letter, listen... This thing in your name is so different from the things that you say in your own name that I don't know which of the two of you to believe. Uh, the one who says, you know, make a noise, uh, go to the peripheries, do things, be brave, don't don't be too worried by what the Vatican says, or the one in Latin saying you are a null person. Well, uh, two months later I was sitting in, in my flat in Madrid and the phone rings with a hidden number and the voice said, this is Pope Francis. And so I said, you're kidding. <laughs> I, said, I, said, no, I said, really? And he said, no, just kidding, son. <laughs> in, in, Spanish, in Spanish, he said, soy el Papa Francisco. En serio? No, hijo, en broma. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just kidding. I thought it was him. You know, it was recognizably his voice. He'd read the letter. So he went through it and he said, I want you to walk with great interior freedom following in the spirit of jesus and i give you the power of the keys do you understand i give you the power of the keys so i said yes i understood even though i didn't but you know it's something important when the successor of peter is talking about keys because that's something to do with what peter does
0: (laughs) yeah yeah yeah
1: Um but later I you know I talked about this and people said well A it obviously meant he's treating me as a priest and B he was giving me jurisdiction to hear confessions and permission to preach. So effectively he was treating as now the decree of his uh, of his congregation for clergy and basically saying, you know, be an adult, get on with it. So um yes, it was it was very encouraging.
0: Yeah, I believe. No, it, so. it
1: it still it it still hasn't resolved, if you like. I still don't belong to anything. I still uh it's like he said, Okay, in giving you wings, fly. But still there's no no tree that I can yet uh land in. But maybe that will happen one day. Um But basically he set me free to exercise a ministry. So that's what I'm trying to uh I'm trying to do.
0: So you're still waiting for the flood of I don't know how would we call this Whatever is flooding this the church to re, uh, <laughs> recede, so you can find a tree. Until
1: yes, I think I think when when their fear and their shame goes down sufficiently that they're not uh, too frightened to talk honestly. I think that that's that's where we're that's where we're at at the moment, and all all over the place there are you know patches are breaking out all over the place. Uh, uh, bishops are talking to to lay people. Lay people finally are just getting on with life, being really quite confident and straightforward, and organising groups, and, uh, making in themselves known to the bishops. The bishops are often too frightened, but little by little, even quite conservative bishops are saying, "Yes, this is really too silly. Um, uh, let's uh, let's see if we can talk about this in a more more grown up way." Um, so I, I I noticed that, as I'm sure you did, in the wake of the the Vatican responsum on the question of blessing uh, same-sex couples. Um, you know, I remember the first time that they came out with the logic that's behind that statement, which was in 1986. It terrified everybody. Scarcely anybody dared to speak out against it because they didn't face up to They couldn't face up to uh, the logic of what it was uh, saying at the time. It was simply a trying to lock people into a, this is undiscussable, this is the truth, this is from God, we say so, this can't be talked about. Um, and yet, when this came out 35 years uh, uh, later, this responsum, the same logic is behind it. And everybody's able to see... This is really not a suitable way to talk about grown-up people. This is this is not a, an adult form of conversation now. Uh, you are stuck, you, the congregation, are stuck within a definition that is a prioristic, that takes no account of what we actually know about the people involved. So, this is not an adult. In other words, the backlash against them was much, much stronger, I think, than they had expected. And that is because. Ordinary lay people, and indeed, even a good number of priests and bishops, are just not prepared to put up with uh, this way of talking any longer. In other words, at last, people are no longer frightened by the old definition. They realize that the old definition is false. But we still need we still need to say that, because it still exercises uh, too much power over people. But little by little, I think, its capacity to shame people into silence is being... Uh, is being washed away and that's what i uh, you know that's what what gives me is one of the things which gives me hope is seeing how straightforwardly people were able to react and saying no 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 that's not a uh, that's not an adult sensible way of talking about these people at all and it just doesn't correspond to what we know of their life uh, so uh, so yeah that's the
0: yeah can you point out a, a few, or just say a few points out of this document um so i don't think that all of us who are watching this podcast know what oh. it is saying exactly i mean i read some parts of it but maybe if you could point out a few things Well the the, the document the, the,
1: well the document which came out um it was It was only a one-word document in one sense, because the only word in it was negative, Um, (laughs) which was asked, you know, it it asked itself a question, and it was probably a conservative German bishop or cardinal who asked it the question deliberately so that it would give a negative answer. Is it permissible to bless same-sex couples? And the answer was negative, it's not. But it then gave a justification for itself uh, for its negative answer, and its justification was God can't bless a sin. And that same-sex couples are, by the nature of their sexual activity, engaging in uh, sin. Uh, and therefore, that's why they can't be blessed. And what's, So what's behind that? What's behind the understanding of sin? And that's that the, they made references to the documents, including the 1986 document, which is where this logic was set out. And the logic, which is their logic, is derived from the understanding that all human beings are theoretically... By virtue of our biology, our visible biology, are uh, intrinsically heterosexual. In other words, we have the plumbing uh, for, that is proper for reproductive. Uh, uh, we have the for reproductive sex, and therefore that there is such a thing as a good sexual act, which is one in which the right pieces of plumbing come together and perform an act that is open to procreation uh, and is between married people okay so that's between married people of opposite sex and that is something that is good and anything that is not that is to some extent ordered away from it so for instance uh, a straight couple using contraception is in some way ordering the sexual act away from its proper finality so that's a disordered sexual act but if it's between two people of the same sex then of course it couldn't possibly achieve it's a, a, a procreative function so it's intrinsically disordered you know it's disordered of its very self and then you have to say what well, the people but the people who are doing this are not trying to have a baby they know i mean you know if if a gay couple is having sex in order to have a baby this is not so much a moral problem as an intellectual problem they haven't understood how reproduction works it's not that they are <laughs> failing to do something <laughs> they're not. so the church says no 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 uh, even the tendency to want to have uh, sex in this way is objectively disordered the tendency itself is objectively disordered which means that a gay or lesbian person is a straight person because they they have the body that is capable of Uh, marital sex but they suffer from some sort of objective disorder such that they typically want to do something that is intrinsically disordered. Now please notice what this means. They're saying that what a gay or lesbian person is just in their body, the plumbing, the external plumbing determines exactly who they are. And that if their desire is in some way different from this, then their desire is disordered. So uh, a gay or lesbian person is, uh, if you like, an objectively disordered straight person. And that therefore there's no possible justification either for their desire or for the acts that they might have. Which is why any sort of coupling between them, however loving and friendly and all of that, would still be covering something that is objectively sinful. So that's their teaching. Now, in one sense, the moment you see it, you say, well, but that's gaslighting. That's saying to people, listen, we know who you are more than you do. Um, We are saying that what you call a sexual orientation, which you have discovered over time as being part of who you are, is not, in fact, a sexual orientation. It's a It's an attraction, a same sex attraction that is a disorder, rather as anorexia might be a disorder or something else, teptomania might be a disorder. And that it's only in as far as you fight against that and deny it that you are really who you are. Whereas what we have typically discovered is, after no doubt a difficult period growing up, we actually discover, actually, this is. This is not a disordered part of a heterosexual me. This is just part of who I am. Um, And it's neither a particularly bad nor a particularly good part of who I am. It's just an ordinary part of who I am. (laughs) And furthermore, as I accept it, so I am able to become more human in my relationships with other people. I'm able to learn how to love other people better, how to be with them better. I'm learning how to be able to take responsibility for my relationships. I'm learning how to be able not to be so frightened and furtive Uh, and I'm ultimately able to learn to be sexually responsible and even uh, chaste in relationship with someone else uh, so that uh, I'm able to choose someone, and he's able to choose me or she's able to choose me, and we're able to build something together. In other words, we discover that it's part of what makes us able to be human. Now, that's what they deny. That's what their system denies. And it's a deduction from a medieval uh, notion uh, derived from Aristotelian thought concerning the finality of the sexual act, and of course, what it can't cope with is the realization that in fact, a sexual orientation, which now neuroscientists, biologists, people who understand study brain chemistry, etc., etc., understands to be something that just is, is hardwired in us, is not the result of hedonistic. Uh, thought patterns or us deciding to do something bad when we're teenagers um, uh, they they understand that this is just, this is hardwired, this is like left-handedness, it's hardwired into people it's not a a flippant choice made at a young age Um, that that is as bodily because as chemical as neurological as the visible bits of plumbing to pretend that the visible bits of plumbing are bodily but the orientation isn't it's simply a misunderstanding of what bodily means <laughs> um, and that, if you like, it's not that uh, our sex is gay or lesbian, but that we are. <laughs> it's part of who we are. And that's, as it were, that's not, if you like, to lock us into an identity. It's, it's much more like a, um, a platform from which we become more in a whole lot of other spheres. It's not a trap. It's a beginning. It's certainly not a closed-down identity. There's no such thing as limits on you through being gay or lesbian, but it's part of what enables you to develop and become whoever you are in whatever field you're advancing—you know, intellectual, moral, personal, uh, creative, dynamic, etc., etc. So that's the difficulty. The difficulty is that in order to protect its moral teaching, the church needs a fake definition of who gay and lesbian people are. It needs us to be defined negatively from a presupposition of intrinsic corporal heterosexuality. And one of the reasons for that is that that argument in the Middle Ages seemed to match with how they understood the Bible. But we now know that the Bible passages that are used against uh, gay people uh, don't mean anything to do with what we call homosexuality. And curiously, at this stage, even the Vatican Biblical Commission realizes that it doesn't have anything to do. <laughs> in other words, when it comes to the biblical material, uh, the Catholic Church has actually got, got increasingly relaxed about its realization that these passages cannot be read in, the, in this way um, properly. That is bad Bible reading. Um, so they have to try and stick with what's called this natural law definition. Um, and which is, you know, it would be like saying, um, human be- if God had wanted humans to fly, he would have given us wings. He didn't give us wings, therefore <coughs> he doesn't want us to fly. Therefore, anyone who flies in an airplane or a helicopter is doing something that is against God's law. Okay. I mean, it's, it's as realistic as that. Once we've discovered aerodynamics, we discovered the possibilities of uh, humans flying, not as something against human nature, but as extensions to what humans, by our nature, have been able to discover how to do. <laughs> yes, I think that the, the, the key question, the key question here, and I think that you know many of us realize this, is that we all, as young people, have struggles of conscience in which we are working out: Is it just that I am this way? Or is it that I or someone else has done something wrong that I am this way? And at this stage, there is no longer any evidence to suggest that anyone has done anything wrong that you or I should be this way. It's certainly not a parent's fault. It's not uh, some youthful trauma. Uh, It's something that's hardwired. It's some mixture of genetic, neurological, hormonal, and environmental uh, factors. But it's certainly not anybody's fault. One, two. The second thing, and it's certainly not something that you or I chose as part of a, um, a what you might call it, uh, an act of youthful wickedness where we thought to ourselves, how can I screw up my life and everything to the maximum possible extent and make life really difficult for myself while having guilty fun? Ah, I know. Why don't I choose to be gay? Um, This is is nonsense. Um, It doesn't happen. Even if we tried, we wouldn't be able to. Uh, Just as straight people don't choose to be straight. Um, This is is something which happens. We discover ourselves over time. Uh, So that's the first thing. Then the second thing is that more and more, as we've become more historically conscious about who we are, we've been able to see that there has been an historical progress over the last 150 years. As people have become more visible, so scientists have been able to begin to ask non-moralistic questions about us, rather than in the old days where criminal, psychological, moral questions were, what's the problem with with these people? Now the question is, I wonder what it what it is that makes these people tick. <clears throat> now that we know that there's no no pathology. You know, the, the, the key discovery in the middle of the 20th century was, the key discovery was, is there some sort of pathology that is intrinsic to being gay or lesbian? In other words, all gay or lesbian people are particularly possessive, or particularly paranoid, or particularly jealous, or that there is something wrong with people, and that it's associated with their quote-unquote homosexuality. Well, what we've learned since the 1950s, of the so in the last century, was that there is no pathology that is intrinsic <coughs> to being gay or lesbian. In other words, that we are as screwed up as straight people, and in exactly the same ways as straight people. And there's no particular way to suggest who is going to be more or less screwed up and in what way. (laughs) Uh, In other words, our sexual orientation is not part of our screwed up, screwed (laughs) upness. Though, of course, as in the case of all of us, as in the case of straight people, uh, we are screwed up in how we live it out. And we have to learn to become less screwed up as we live it out, and that normally and healthily the way of, of being humanized in this is a learning process. <laughs> um, and it includes learning how not to be possessive, how to be honest, how to be responsible, how to love in general. So, you know, since the 1950s, it really is interesting that the, 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 the medicine has been pretty clear since then. And it's only got clearer since, as we've discovered, uh, as DNA was discovered, as neuroscience has advanced, and we've begun to discover a whole lot of interesting things. And of course, the science has a long way to go. But the key factor was, the key question was, is there any psychopathology that is intrinsic to being gay or lesbian? And even in the 1950s, the answer came back clear. None has been detected which means we are as as screwed up as everybody else, not more or less screwed up than everybody else. In other words, we're human. Our learning process has to work uh, the same way, humanly. And and that, of course, is what is, you know, in, a, in one sense is what was at the heart of the row which came out with the responsum. It's because so many people have worked out that that is true that same-sex couples recognize that their married life is a blessing and seek to bless God for it with their friends by having liturgies of blessing. And that, of course, those people who know them, including the priests and bishops who know them, think, yes, this makes perfect sense. These people are blessing each other. They have become a blessing to their friends, let us bless God for this. We don't know exactly what kind of sacramentality this relationship has. Maybe it's the same as in straight sex weddings, straight couple weddings, maybe not. That's a question for the future. But that it is clearly a sign or blessing as we have learnt who these people are for each other, well, yes. And it was the attempt to stop that, that learning process, if you like, that the response weighed in. I was saying, no, you can't learn anything true about who you are because it's all wrong. <coughs> and of course people say, no. No, that's just not a useful way. We have accompanied people. We know too many people in this in this sphere. Uh, the ability to speak honestly about this can't be closed down by decrees from on high. And no, you the congregation of the doctrine of faith don't know more about us than we know about ourselves. You claim to know more about us from a 13th century piece of deduction. You don't. (laughs) This is not from God, this is the tradition of men, and you are using it to make void the word of God. (laughs) Jesus talks about that. using you stick to the tradition of men and you make void the word of god so
0: yeah yeah Uh, thank you for this these words i hope that what you just said can be of great encouragement to the people who listen to this podcast and or watch it thank you for this part i'm looking forward to the second one uh, thank you, dear viewers, for uh, watching this part. Uh, you can also you can find the second part next week uh, for our next uh, episode. Uh, Thank you for being with us and listening to uh, James' story. Uh, As I said in the beginning, all the links, uh, James Allison wrote a lot of interesting books and I will put the links below in the podcast description, so please go and check them out. Don't forget this podcast is made in partnership with the European Forum and this uh, the priceless podcast so if you want to support this podcast to continue i would encourage you to give a donation towards the podcast or you can also give a donation to the european forum so this was it for today oh i almost forgot the audio version you can find on any podcast app by searching the priceless podcast so till next monday and for now all i can say is bye everyone